Well, if you've in recent years participated in athletics at any level, whether that you've been playing athletics or you've viewed a sporting event, uh, th- this is not going to become any kind of surprise to you. Maybe, maybe you're not much of an athlete, but you've seen a Rocky movie, um, and that's the, the extent of your athletic prowess. Uh, you're not going to be surprised by this claim that I came across uh, this past week. It says that while there is no substitute for practice, good nutrition, and sleep, research suggests that music can provide assistance in achieving your optimum emotional, mental, and physical state before and during a competition. Again, not my claim. This was on the internet. In fact, this claim uh, came from a website. Website was betterfencer.com. I don't know if you even knew that site even existed. Apparently, music can help you in your sword game. And I think we can all agree uh, to some extent that this is true. Whether it was the pep band when you were in high school or or college uh, prompting uh, the football team or a basketball team on the court uh, to aspire for greater things when they hear that uh, music played, or maybe just the individual athlete uh, walking around uh, even nowadays uh, with headphones on, listening to tunes. Of course, major uh, headphone brands are counting on this. Uh, They've been battling for some time now for ad space and product placement on some of our professional sports teams. And of course, there is no shortage, if you go online, uh, of pre-game playlists that are available for download. I went on Spotify this past week just to see uh, what was out there. There is a lot of them. (laughs) There's a lot of these uh, playlists that are set up to help prepare you uh, for the coming game. So in the spirit of the latter uh, playlist, let me offer a track this morning for us to add to our own Holy Week playlist. All right, so this is our pre-game playlist our Holy Week playlist that will help us get hyped for the coming week. All right, this is going to help us get hyped. Here it is, Psalm 118, Psalm 118. Now, many of you might be familiar with this psalm, and you may not realize it. Uh, If you've read through the Gospels and Acts and you've seen that line, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118. If you've come into worship and someone has stood uh, before you, or maybe as you've participated in worship, they said, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118. So you may have uh, heard some of these familiar lines from the psalm itself, uh, but let me offer here why it makes for a great pregame playlist. Verses 1 through 4 of that psalm, if you look in there, resound with the audience singing here, God's steadfast love endures forever come out strong, right? Come out swinging right from the get-go. Get you all pumped up right there. Of course, in verse 5, we see liberation and rescue is joined with the confidence of the psalmist in verses 6 through 7. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? Again, we're getting hyped up here. The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. All right, you're getting pumped up, right? Pre-game playlist. How about verse 10, Psalm 118? It marks the start to a series of episodes here where the psalmist is being surrounded, only each time responds with destruction of the adversary. Actually goes so far as uses this kind of line. It talks about being encircled, and the way the adversary is defeated is circumcised, is the Hebrew words that are in there. So absolute destruction there. And then verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. Right, great pregame playlist to get you all hyped up. And on it goes. This psalm is a psalm of victory for sure. Certainly one 
that when sung in mass, so not just with one person, but a whole crowd of folks who are singing this song, you would get totally pumped up, totally hyped. But the psalmist's words are also soaked here in the reality of life. It's not just words that are thrown out there to be super positive or to pump people up. There is actually a, a sense here that what the person or who sings this song is longing for is still a long way off. We actually hear that in the words in verse 25. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. It's not for certain now, it's hoped for that it'd be coming. But of course there's a response. Good playlist is going to have a response. And from a liturgical standpoint, the response is probably scripted in the way that a crowd would shout out uh, that longing for God's salvation, and the priest would then stand up and offer this response in verse 26 of Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That sounds familiar, right? You just heard that. Not just from me reading right now, but even earlier in our text. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's John 12, 13. And what we hear there is this is not only our playlist, it's not just our pregame Holy Week playlist. Psalm 118 was the track on the pregame playlist of the crowd in Jesus' day on that first Palm Sunday. That they had been hearing that, that they had been letting that soak in and were pondering that as that day arrived. And it sheds light on what they might have been expecting on that day. So Psalm 118 suggests uh, some kind of victory here. Strong statements about the surrounding nations. We see that in verse 10 of the psalm. A geopolitical victory is certainly what's in mind here. It's certainly what the people are imagining, and not just because of the psalm itself. In John's account, and specifically in verse 13, we read that the crowd took branches of palm trees. And it's important for us to note here, and it's significant, Uh, that when you look at the other gospel writers, they don't actually mention that they're palm branches. They're just branches in the other writers. But here John notes specifically that palms are used. And that's not by accident. The palm branch was deeply symbolic. And some of that symbolism is shared among stories from an earlier generation. Stories about victory over foreign occupiers during the Maccabean revolts. A victory that was followed by a procession of people entering the city. And this is what it says in 1 Maccabees 13.51. They entered the city with praise and palm branches. The palm representing triumph and victory. And of course, in that part of the world, it held those meanings. But for these people specifically, it meant Jewish independence. In Jesus' day, the people are clamoring for a similar outcome against their Roman occupiers. And the expectation here is that Jesus will be at the helm of that effort. In fact, the song is amended with this identification. If you notice that in John's gospel, the king of Israel. Of course, this identification isn't isolated to our text alone. It's one that shows up throughout John's gospel. Nathaniel, actually early on in John chapter 1, will identify Jesus with this same title. In John 6, the crowd actually tries to take Jesus by force and make Jesus king. And Jesus withdraws from the area before that can happen. And of course, we know as the story goes on that after his arrest, Jesus, again in John's gospel, 
will be questioned about his kingship by Pilate. He'll be mocked, ridiculed, and beaten because of it. And again, reference is made to him being king in each of those. He'll be rejected by the people when presented to them as their king. John also makes a point of that. He makes the point that they say, we have only one king, but Caesar. And will then be identified, of course, Jesus here, with a placard placed on the very cross on which he hung that identified Jesus as king. So people were talking about Jesus' kingship and had been doing so for some time. And reading just outside our text this morning, we discover that in verse 18, that this talk was probably supercharged by talk of the resurrection of Lazarus, that that event was probably what supercharged this. If you're looking for a superhero to rescue you from a superpower like Rome, Jesus sure seems to fit the bill, is probably what they're thinking. We're looking for a superhero. And so the picture here is a bit like the entry into a prize fight. The people's champion pressing toward the ring for that much-anticipated showdown. If you go back to 1999, remember 1999? Remember we were all afraid of Y2K? Back in 1999, particularly around the Easter season, there's a group of creatives called the Church Advertising Network who uh, ran a promotional campaign in the UK. And this uh, group has organized campaigns throughout the years uh, to encourage people to participate in local churches on Easter Sunday. And that year, in 1999, Easter actually was on April 4th, which is quite a coincidence. It's on April 4th this year. And so posters and signage were generated and hung all over town. And that year's poster... You can go back and look this up, Church Advertising Network online. That year's poster was a picture of Jesus, this crowned Jesus, who's in the likeness of Che Guevara. And that's the poster that was hung all over town. Well, that, if that didn't get you riled up seeing that, underneath the poster it had this line, meek, mild, as if. Discover the real Jesus, church, April 4th. Marketers wanted people here to think and ask questions about Jesus. In fact, a minister who was interviewed by the BBC at the time of the campaign offered this. We want people to realize that Jesus is not a meek, mild wimp in a white nightie, but a real, passionate, and caring person. Jesus was a revolutionary figure and more revolutionary than anyone in the 20th century. That's an interesting statement. That's a strong, bold statement about who Jesus is. But at this part in the story, and certainly in the way that John is telling the story here in our text, the Jesus we encounter doesn't comport himself as the aggressive revolutionary. It's not that figure that people seem to have wanted or might have been hoping for. It's made, this is made all the more clear in a couple of ways. One is this, his choice of ride. Jesus' choice of ride. Jesus comes riding on a young donkey. And our gospel writer notes that this was a fulfillment of an older text, and specifically Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah notes that their king comes victorious in triumph, if you read the original text, but not on a war horse, not aboard a chariot, but rather humble and riding atop an animal far more humble than other options. The second thing is this, what happens next? 
when you read John's account. It's not really obvious just from our text itself, so we have to read a little bit further. And what we find here as the story unfolds is this is what happens. Nothing! (laughs) Well, not exactly nothing, or nothing, nothing. Not to start to revolutionary activity or any kind of show of force. In fact, what will happen next is Jesus will speak of his own death later in the chapter. And in the very next chapter, he'll do the unthinkable, the absolute unthinkable. Instead of assuming the posture of the mighty king, Jesus adopts the lowly posture of a foot-washing slave. And so, nothing is probably a good description of what happens there. If this is the kind of champion that is being put before Rome or any of our present troubles, is this the one we're hoping, we're pinning our hopes on, if this is the one that we're clamoring for when we say, God save us, we should probably answer with this, God save us. That, of course, was their hope. Hosanna. And such salvation would require a figure in their imagination who was both large and in charge. That's the hope of the people. And Jesus doesn't seem to fit that bill. But not so fast. Not so fast. The gospel writer here certainly envisions Jesus as being both large and in charge. You don't have to read long into the Gospel of of John to learn that Jesus is large. John chapter 1, verse (laughs) 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. That's John verse 1, chapter 1, right from the beginning. You don't get larger than is God. (laughs) As we read in that first chapter, And as we go further in the chapter, we learn that this word in verse 14 is in fact Jesus. That Jesus is in fact God. That's the claim that John makes right from the beginning of the gospel. And noting Zechariah's prophecy in our own text, we find yet another nod to this ginormous Jesus. And we can add here, of course, throughout John, the I am statements. We could add the sign miracles. We can even add the declaration of Thomas at the end of the gospel in which he refers to Jesus as his Lord and his God. And though comedian Lenny Bruce, that you didn't think Lenny Bruce would make his way into a sermon, but comedian Lenny Bruce once quipped that Christ's crucifixion was one of those parties that got out of hand. The gospel writer takes great care to show that Jesus here is in complete control of the situation. That nothing is going to happen to him that he doesn't give consent to. We see this clearly in our text. Unlike the other gospel writers, when you read this story of Palm Sunday, John makes a point here that the other gospel writers don't. And that's Jesus finds the donkey. That Jesus is the one who goes out and gets the donkey. But we also see throughout the gospel other places where Jesus is in charge. And just taking the portions here that we're going to look at here in Holy Week, hear carefully how Jesus is in charge in each. When Jesus is betrayed by Judas in chapter 18, and a group of soldiers and the police arrive to take him into custody, the gospel writer notes this, then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward. He steps forward. Jesus is in control. He's not taken captive by accident. There's not things that are just happening to him. Even at the moment of his death, the gospel writer notes that Jesus is in charge with deliberate statements from the cross fulfilling scripture, and then even at that very last moment, 
Jesus will say, it is finished, at which point the gospel writer then notes that he lowers his head and dies. Jesus is in complete control throughout. So it's clear that Jesus' intentions as he rides into the city on that Palm Sunday are intentional. These are intentional acts. They're things that Jesus is in charge of. The one who is large is also in charge. And this Jesus has come to bring salvation. Jesus has come to save the world. And that, far from being a failed attempt to spark a revolution, each of the events of the coming week, even the moments of that darkest hour, are not by accident. Each saying something about what Jesus is up to. But Jesus' disciples, in verse 16, don't understand what's going on. Palm Sunday, they don't get it. And the branch-waving crowd shouting for relief also miss the intentions of the very salvation that rides before them. I wonder if we're prone to do the same thing. If we're prone to miss it. We, of course, have the benefit of the gospel editor to interpret these events for us and what's happening here in this triumphal entry and include references to things like Zechariah. And we have the benefit of hindsight as well. Here we sit in the 21st century and we can look back. We know this, how the story ends. But like the Hosanna shouting crowd, we want salvation. We want it now. But the salvation we oftentimes clamor for, the one that we want, is on our terms, like that crowd. We want God to champion our cause. There's a noted Christian writer who's uh, connected with the Salvation Army. Her name's Danielle Strickland. And she makes this observation about the crowd in Jesus' day. She writes, They weren't asking God to save them so much as they were asking God to join them in saving themselves. And as much as it may sound like the same thing, it is indeed a completely different thing altogether. Help us help ourselves is the age-old idea of religion and politics, and the dangerous mix of them together is a toxic potion of saving, in quotes, but not from ourselves, just from them, the others, who aren't like us. The same cry is uttered from every other crowd since. And Strickland writes this, including me. I say, save me, but what I mean is on my terms. I cry, save me, but what I mean is please make me win. Be the best, land at the top. Be the special one, the right one, the chosen one. Please elevate me. Be on my side is the Hosanna I shout most of the time. It's a Hosanna, all right but it's not the kind of saving I need. It's just the kind I want. By the end of the week, Strickland will go on to observe the crowd doesn't change its mind. That crowd didn't change its mind. It simply just changed its leader. They reject Jesus, and they choose instead a man named Barabbas, who was a known revolutionary. They simply just changed their leader. So what can we do about all this? What do we do here as we prepare for Holy Week? Well, in closing, let me offer two recommendations for us to consider. The first one is this. As we enter this Holy Week, 
Let's take great care to welcome and receive Jesus and to receive what God has given to us in Christ. No embellishments, no agenda, no attempt to commandeer the message or the messenger. But how do you do that? How do you do that? We have biases. How, how, do, I, how do I do that? Well, it's the second thing here. Let's ask the question that the disciples most certainly were asking themselves in verse 16. What is Jesus up to? What is Jesus doing? What is it that we're seeing right now from Jesus? So as we enter this Holy Week, and at each stop along the way, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. Let's keep journeying alongside Jesus. Let's keep watching. Let's keep listening. Let's keep longing to know more. Let's be a curious people as we look to Christ and we continue to ask the question, what is Jesus up to? And it's commingled with that prayer. Hosanna. Hosanna. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love. A great love that's expressed in Jesus riding into a city, riding amidst the cheers and shouts of victory and triumph, but riding and knowing what is to come and yet still riding on. So, Lord, as we find ourselves here today in absolute awe, with absolute gratitude for what you have done, we pray, Lord, that we would not miss it this week. Help us in this holy week to not miss it, but rather to continue to wrestle with that question, what is Jesus up to? Pray, Lord, that as we ask this question, that we'll hear a resounding answer from you our God, the one who loves us, the one who has offered us grace. 